back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, is my co-hostess, Vanessa Hogel. Back with us tonight is Dr. Heather Lynn, the renegade archaeologist. She's been our guest a couple times before, talking about some of her other books. Last time was Evil Archaeology. This time, it is the Anunnaki Connection. I really enjoyed this book. Looking forward to talking with her about all that. Heather, welcome back. Happy to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And we have you on video this time. So this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I've been my quarantine home. (laughs) Yes, yes. You're doing all right. Staying healthy. (laughs) Yeah, shelter in place. Good. But you're feeling better. I am. I am definitely feeling better. Yeah. I have a a little cough that I can't shake, but um, no complaints otherwise. Good, good. Yeah. You had a little bit of a scare there. We we did. asked that people you know put out some positive energy for you so we hope that helped but um you have a new book good good you have a new book that uh, is really really interesting um from what i uh you know gathered the uh um almost kind of the um push on this is it's the alternative to the alternative uh when it comes to this type of ancient history and that is the (laughs) that is the anunnaki connection sumerian gods alien dna and the fate of humanity so uh we know you've been uh very very interested uh in, in this uh archaeology this history you have other works about uh the sumerians so um what brought you to specifically the anunnaki well i was kind of uh, i think thrown into it in a lot of ways it's it's sort of one of those things that anymore you can't avoid um you know with just ancient history in general and the study of the sumerians uh, and then also of course if you're interested in anything alternative you can't help but come across this kind of Sumer mania, I describe it, uh, with, you know, people with their theories about who the Anunnaki were and, you know, or are, depending on your outlook. And uh, so, you know, it was just one of those things where I had an interest in it, but it wasn't, um, I mean, it wasn't huge, to be honest. It was just kind of an in passing. And uh, 20, I think 2013 it was, uh, I started to go a little more into that um, based on getting emails from a lot of people who were trying to ask a lot of questions about the situation. And then one in particular from somebody in Iraq who was concerned about um, an archeological excavation that was going on at the time. Um, And they were talking about the cuneiform tablets and these sorts of things. And just the whole notion of it being controversial, I think, stuck with me as peculiar because you don't typically think of uh, ancient civilizations necessarily as being, uh, you know, controversial in any sort of way. So uh, it just snowballed from there, really. The more I researched, the more intrigued I was, the more I found these alternative theories. And I just thought, wow, I I should really make a study out of this. Um, And then I did, you know, and that's pretty much what led me here, I, I guess, is kind of like a primary focus of my study, it seems. At least it has been for the past at least, you know, what, six years. And so while I'm not as well versed on these subjects as perhaps uh, previous people in the field, like a Zachariah Sitchin or somebody who spent decades or more researching, uh, you know, I, I, I plan to keep going. I, I plan to keep uncovering some of these more interesting aspects of the Sumerian culture and their deities like the Anunnaki. 
Yeah, you, so you, this was my first book kind of to really cover what it is that I have found over these past sort of six years. Yeah, you do mention Zachariah Sitchin within the book, and um, I've read his his book, The Twelfth Planet, his theories of uh, Nibiru. Um, what's your take on his theories? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, like I said, I still have a cough. Um, my take on his theories, it's something that I, you know, I, I do... In the book, I kind of go into that a, a lot because yeah. that is the number one question. Before I launched the book and, and some of the different radio shows I've, I've, I've been on, I had somebody email me and ask me, so what camp are you in? Are you in the, you know, they, they came down and enslaved us and made us mine for gold? Or did they come down to enslave us to force us to work agriculture? Like, what is your take on it? And that was sort of telling because that kind of, you know, uh, it encompasses the whole issue altogether that I think that I have about the Anunnaki as a subject and about sort of Zechariah Sitchin and his theories is that what's happened now is that uh, over time we've gotten these cults of personality and right. people are rightfully interested in these topics and these particular authors. But in a lot of ways, these authors are, you know, either they've passed or their work is a lot older. And so what you have is the, the work is, is in a, state of suspended animation in a way. It was stunted at one point and didn't necessarily flourish. You have a lot of fans and so the popularity expanded, but the actual digging into it, no pun intended, um, didn't really go along with maybe the hype. And so you start having these sort of, you know, divided issues and it really now is starting to mimic what is going on in the mainstream, generally speaking where you have a left versus right or this versus that and everything is versus as opposed to trying to take a look and say, okay, what, what is right about these? What maybe could be expanded on? What do we know now isn't so accurate and how can we kind of combine in a way, um, you know, some of these theories. And so that's what I tried to do in the Anunnaki connection was, you know, maybe connect a lot of the dots or, you know, filter through some of these things. And so as far as Sitchin is concerned, his work was absolutely amazing because he, you know, really started bringing the subject of the Anunnaki out to a popular audience and getting people excited about it. And that's so vitally important. He wasn't the first to study these. I mean, you have Samuel Noah Kramer, you have all sorts of people in the 20s and 30s who, I mean, really did the heavy lifting on this. They, they were the archaeologists, they discovered the tablets, they even translated them. So in a lot of ways, you'll have people say, well, Sitchin was the only one to translate them. And that's actually not true. Um, and so there's that. But Sitchin did launch this out into the, the zeitgeist, if you will. And that is why his work is so important is because he really put out all of these different ideas and, and really got people excited and, and continues to even long after he's gone. I, I believe he'll continue getting people excited about this subject now. But as far as his theories are concerned. I think that there are, you know, there's a lot to it. And I think it's not necessarily, most people nitpick his translations, which right. is understandable. Um, but, you know, I don't know if it's as much about translations as it is interpretations. So there are a few parts that like, maybe he didn't translate, you know, correctly, if you will. And those things have been, uh, you know, criticized by other scholars and most notably Michael Heiser and uh, others. And so, you know, that's fine, but everybody's wrong at some point. I mean, nobody has a perfect track record. 
Um, and so I'm not really as concerned about are his translations correct, because for the most part, they were correct based in his knowledge and understanding of Hebrew. And so there's that. So he wasn't starting from nothing. But it's just in some of the ways, the interpretations themselves, like how far he took it. Um, and you have to remember, too, uh, I think the first book that he had, it was nonfiction, but then he came out with Earth Chronicles, which were a series of fictionalized accounts. Well, that's when it gets a little sticky is, you know, and I understand his motivation for doing that because it's really difficult to, you know, want to express some of these alternative ideas and, you know, want to fill in the blanks a little bit with your own speculation um, and you face criticism for doing that. So it's, it's a really, you know, difficult path to navigate. And so he chose to navigate that by uh, putting these books out as fiction. I think that was probably where he went wrong only because it's made it more difficult for people to sift through what is his interpretation based on strict translations and science or his interpretation and speculation, which I don't have a problem with the speculation. It's just, I think it's muddied that it blurred the line between fact and fiction. And, uh, you know, I, th I think we need to go back into that, research it a little further and start to, you know, examine it, analyze it a little more. And I think, People were doing that, but then something happened. And I think just with the divisiveness in general, maybe that's what happened. Everybody had to like pull to one side or the other and pit people against each other. Um, I don't I don't think that's helpful or necessary. I have a question for you, and I'm not as well versed in this subject as Michael yourself, obviously. But when you were talking about the translation and interpretation, translation, like you said, is 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 fairly fact. I mean, if you have enough knowledge of Hebrew, then you know what they're saying. The interpretation, like you said, is where it gets hinky, kind of mm -hmm. like the Bible. People could, you can have 10 different people that read a Bible. They all know how to read it, but their interpretation of, of that particular passage is going to be completely different. Are you running into that or have you ran into that with any of these aforementioned books based on somebody's interpretation from the time that they were in when they wrote it? You understand what I'm saying? I think, yeah, I think I know what you're saying. Like sort of the loss in translation and like the time. I, I think I, uh, perhaps I, I think I'm following you. I think one uh, example that I could give is sort of the difficulty in actually translation in general, because a lot of times it's, you know, viewed as more scientific than it is. It's more of an art than a science. Mm -hmm. And a good example of that would be if we were to, if I were to say, hey, you know, that's, that's, that's a really cool shirt you have on. Um, you would know what I'm talking about for the most part. If you went back um, to the 1950s and I said, that's a really cool shirt, you'd probably still know what I was talking about. And arguably 20 years from now, that'll still be the same potentially. But if I say, what does cool mean? You know, it's, it's a temperature. It's, it's a particular subjective temperature. It's not too hot. It's not too cold, et cetera. Um, but you and I would know that what, what the context is. And that's only because of our, current space and time. So there's a lot of things that we kind of take for granted or, or miss out on completely because we don't have the proper context, even if we would have the right uh, understanding of the language. And so that's another layer that complicates things. And, you know, it's not impossible to know those things because uh, there's Assyrian, Babylonian, there's a, a progression of the language that you can kind of compare, but it is definitely contextual and based on you know, the time and the place of those people. And, and it's really difficult for us now in 2020 to fully comprehend what they meant. 
And so that is when you have to do more of a, you know, an analysis, but also, yeah, interpretation. And, and that leads you to be either both biased and obviously subjective. And then that can open you up to a lot of criticism, rightfully so, but you know, that's where it leaves us. And so you have with somebody like Sitchin, you know, what you could consider a lot of gaps or a lot of flaws in his theories. Mm -hmm. um, but you can choose to look at that as, oh, well, he do not know what he's talking about. I'm going to debunk him. That's just like, look, it's, or you can say, that's what happens when you do this work is you are going to have those sorts of, you know, uh, conditions and you, and, and it's part of the process of learning and, you know, empirical research that you're supposed to go back, criticize, build on, stand on the shoulders of giants, et cetera. And uh, that's what I think is happening is that a lot of people maybe just aren't doing that. that that's yeah. what I'm yeah. interesting is what, what you said earlier where um, the other gentleman said, well, did they come down to enslave you for gold or did they come down to enslave you for agriculture? Why does it have to be one or the other? Why is there the separatism? Why couldn't right they have had this particular section for that or this section for that and a third section for something else. It just makes one wonder why the separatism. Exactly. I think part of that too is um, what happens when these sorts of, you know, bold ideas and, and people who are willing to go the extra mile and put their neck out there on the line and take those risks when academia and the mainstream they don't really allow or encourage that. What you then have is, uh, you know, this pushing to the fringes. And so you have all this fringe research. Well, the unfortunate part is there's not a university of fringe. There's not this <laughs> academia of the alternative. Um, and so where those things get pushed out to um, are, is, is a more of a commercial venture. So you have people selling books, selling conferences, right. selling things, and understandably, because it's like the only way you can get the information out. However, that's where it goes. And as a result of that, an individual who, say, writes a book, you know, they're wanting to get that information out. But it also needs to sell. And the people involved in the what has become an industry now, uh, they have the vested interest to not necessarily get the information out all the time as much as to profit. And so it's about pushing an agenda and pushing an agenda. You know, it's hard to say agenda because it maybe seems like it's conspiratorial and it's something like social engineering, but the agenda could just simply be to make money or to be the most popular opinion or, you know, something to that effect. And so what you'll have are publishers or whoever who's pushing that, that agenda. And then it makes it seem like, well, then that's the leading theory or that's the only theory or, and that's just a consequence of this information and these, uh, you know, topics not being allowed to flourish in mainstream academia yeah you're you're right it has become an industry these days and you know back in sitchin's day i mean anytime you offer an alternative to the mainstream you're inviting criticism but you know it seems like it, it started this arena started getting its legs you had sitchin uh you had eric von daniken chariot of the gods um, and you know, now it's, it's blown up into something bigger, you know, ancient aliens has been on for 10 years. Now you have all yes. these different people writing books. Um, I, you're writing books. I, I wrote a book on shadow people. So we're all kind of, you know, putting this information out there, things that we've researched. Is it muddying the waters too much? Or is this, is this a good thing that we have a lot of people in the pot and kind of stirring it in, in putting these things out there? I think both. I think it's a little of both. I think that it's a good thing because we need more 
research. And, you know, you need to have that big body of knowledge to, to be able to criticize and compare and, and whatnot. But um, I think the problem is, is the, you know, I don't want to pick on people. I mean, of course, I could be criticized in the same way, but just it honestly, I think it's quality of research. I think there's a lack of quality because people are in such a push to just capitalize off of the idea of the Anunnaki that they just put stuff out, put stuff out. And and what they're putting out is just like regurgitation. Mm-hmm. It's just deriv- derivative of the same theory, and which is why you get a lot of just echo chamber sitchin or echo chamber. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, like I'm sure your audience, if they're interested in this, they know of a lot of different areas of the web where you have this person thinking this and this person arguing this, or maybe they look like mer people or they look like, you know, whatever. There's all these different camps. And it just seems as though in an effort for people to, you know, put out information, they, they, they lean towards those, put out the information and it just builds in these pockets as opposed to um, really trying to get out there and look at things. And so I think it's good. We should never really put a limit on, on how much information can come out and, and what we're doing. But at the same time, yeah, I think it's, it's a question of uh, poor quality as opposed to the quantity. So hopefully... Right. Hopefully we can get some more people coming in and, you know, giving it a, a better go. So but there's a risk because yeah. you get put in that camp of like, oh, well, you're anti this or you're anti that. Right. It's like, well. So how is your take on the Anunnaki different than what's out there right now? Or what has been out there? Because now your stuff it. is out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, that's something that, um, you know, for years I've been looking at this and, and sort of talking about different aspects of it, not the actual theories, because I didn't really have a theory because I just had no opinion built up yet. And so after all this time, I finally think that I have satisfied um, my own curiosity to a particular extent. I mean, there's still so much more to look into. So for me, I looked at, you know, the, the mainstream academic journals. I looked at the trend, you know, the actual tablets, things you can do online because there's Sumerian cuneiform dictionaries and, you know, lots of resources to do the research. Um, but then I also obviously looked at alternative theories, you know, um, everything you could imagine. And from that, I tried not to have that whole, like, oh, this sounds cool. I like this, even though that is a thing where it's like, oh, this is really fun and really cool. But to try to separate that out from like, well, does that make sense? And, and, you know, is, can that be related to this or whatever? So I try to make a connection ultimately. For me, I found that in terms of where these individuals came from and sort of just the ancient history of our planet and these sorts of things, I found that the idea of a, a near extinction event, you know, it's 10 to 12,000 years ago uh, was probably a likely scenario. And that was, it was an important component to this because you have like authors like say Graham Hancock who talk about um, civilization X and these sort of the Mm -hmm. younger dryas, you know, theory and, and that sort of thing. That's I think spot on. I think that you can't then say, well, okay, but then these spaceships that look like 1950s technology, you know, metal coming in, Iron Giant, whatever, you know, all this clink, clink, clank and like smoke coming out that happened during, no, to me, that just didn't make sense. That didn't mean that I threw away the information Sitchin had. So for me, what, what I, what I 
I, I looked at was getting the personalities out of the way, getting these main theories together and seeing if there was any like Venn diagram, if you will, seeing if there was any overlap and anything that would make sense. And then compare that to the archeological record. What is actually there? What do we know? And so from where I stand, um, it's more complicated than saying the Anunnaki, they were this, they did this and they, no. The Anunnaki in my research, I believe the name Anunnaki, the term is what's been most confusing. I think that if you look back at the most ancient texts and you follow it all throughout um, up into Assyrian, Babylonian and whatnot, you'll find that the those who are considered Anunnaki, it changed over a lot of years. So at the very beginning, you have uh, you know a, a, a trinity, a holy trinity. You have like a father, son, and a holy spirit. Right. On was the main god, and you know, you, so you have all these kinds of things. But then you also have you know semi biological entities. What is that? You know, then you have absolutely biological entities that were called Anunnaki, and they they guided the kings over you know what to do, and and they ate things, and you know there was like this real science behind what they were doing. It was very tangible. Yes, they walked beside people and they, you know, the book I outline all the things that they like to eat and what they like to do and the recipes, just very human-like things. Um, and so you see that the Anunnaki themselves, you know, we may be familiar with like maybe 12 of them roughly, depending on how much you get into this. There were arguably thousands of them over an extended period of time. So, and we're discovering more all the time. So what does that mean for this concept as a whole of the Anunnaki? Well, it means it's a little more complicated. And so that led me to go further and try to find out where, where were these first mentioned? Just as a, a, in a nutshell summary, I think that what we have is a situation where after the flood that came about because of a near extinction event, you had people who are highly advanced, sort of the civil, civilization X, if you will, who were located in the North they fled that land and they went to Mesopotamia. At the time, Mesopotamia was inhabited by hunter-gatherer type people that were, um, you know, loosely organized. They had pottery and different things that, um, in a way, it was like the Celts, where it wasn't necessarily a people um, in the time. They weren't called the Celts, but that you could identify pottery patterns and different, you know, behavioral tendencies. So there was something like that. There was a culture there before, but they were lacking the high civilization, the things that we would consider to be actual civilization, like arts and science and, and math and astronomy and medicine, right. these sorts of things. And so you have those people. In the accounts, you have the story of Noah that it, it predates the, the Noah story that we know of that, you know, has sort of an ark and these animals and all this. It, 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 it predates that and it's very different. When you look at the translation, it really discusses a group of like technocratic elites, like people who knew science, people who understood, you know, all the things necessary for a breakaway civilization. They knew the flood was coming or some sort of disaster was coming based on their knowledge of astronomy. And what they did was they gathered what was in the text called all the animals of the steppe. That was an important distinction because it wasn't just all the animals in the world. And this is where, you know, people may get angry based on their religious beliefs, but it was all the animals of a steppe, meaning those that they would have used to be able to survive in a nomadic way. 
that would have been, you know, the animals that they would have used for milk and, and food, this sort of thing. So they took those. What they were doing was trying to have a breakaway civilization. They did. They traveled and they went south and they ended up in Mesopotamia where they encountered what they called the black-headed people. Now, if you have black hair and you encounter other people and you call them the black-headed people, that doesn't make sense because why would you differentiate that if that's not something different? So it would stand to reason that these people did not look like those people. They were not described as looking like that. The people in Mesopotamia before it was actually Mesopotamia, they, um, given their diet, not having a lot of meat or animal products, um, they, they would have been, you know, hunter gatherer, not having access to say like farm animals and just constant sources of protein. Um, their, their stature, they were smaller. They were about five, four, 11, five, two at best. The people that would have come from the North, and this is based on skeletal remains. This is actual fact. They would have come down and been much bigger because they had domestic animals and agriculture and, and these sorts of things. And they would have looked a certain way based on the genetic, you know, findings of, you know, where they were. It would have been very striking to the people who were there saying, oh my gosh, who are these people? And so what you have here is these sorts of visitors. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let me ask you something. Um, these visitors from the north, and this is more of a, I guess, more recent discovery uh, with the Denisovans. Could these visitors from the north that came down could have been these peoples? Yeah, yeah, I, I really do think that that's a you know possibility. And um, based on, like I said, their skeletal remains. I discuss sort of the different artifacts in the book uh, more closely, but. Um, there's a lot of reason, like for instance, when the, they not only called them the black-headed people, they called them the Adama. The Adama, where we get Adam, actually meant red people. Well, the understanding of that in like a Hebrew text is that man was made out of the red clay. And so that's sort of like where we get the idea of red people. However, another way to look at that is that in the region, there's a particular type of ochre that was used at the time in burials. That was a particular type of red and you know, if they were using it to adorn bodies after death, it could stand to reason that they, you know, of course this is speculation, but it, there's there's evidence that could suggest that they were also, you know, adorning themselves with red ochre while they were alive. And so sure. they could have looked red and they had black hair. So they could, they were the black headed Adama. Um, and that's what they were called. So, so you have this group of people who then uh, uh, position themselves in a way that they were Kings you know, they were, they were gods. Um, and so that makes the Anunnaki, the original Anunnaki that way, very much physical, alive beings that didn't necessarily come from space, but they did come from far away, given the, you know, Sumerian problem that is cited in academia as this question of like, well, their language was so different than anything else in that area. Plus, they showed up out of nowhere, seemingly, and in a course of 200 years, they made this marvelous civilization. How do we explain that? Well, there's that. Now, the part that gets a little maybe out there and could be out there for some people is if you go even further back and consider how did these people, these actual physical, say, Anunnaki visitors, how did they have all this high technology pre-flood? You know, uh, we don't know because it was pre-flood, right. but there's writings there's, there were some writings that were of like oral history. So there is a little evidence to, to say that they carried their religion with them. One of the things they believed was 
that they were in contact with these otherworldly beings they call the seven sages. Those are also considered Anunnaki in the, in the literature. They're called Anunnaki. So that's why Anunnaki is sometimes not a helpful word. Um, but, you know. It, so it seems like they, it's more of a generalized <laughs> word than something specific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, and then later in the text, I show this um, this tablet that kind of starts to show, like it's like an alternative to the king's list. The king's list will say, you know, this king was advised by this Anunnaki sage, and it goes on this lineage. But then after a while, you it, they disappear with that, and it just becomes that the king is like the Anunnaki. Like, so it's like the Anunnaki left, but the so I liken it to the word lord. You know, you have the okay. landlord, the Lord of the manor, Lord Jesus, the Lord, you know, so it's one of those things where after a while it can start to, you know, maybe uh, anthropomorphize in, in such a way. Like, it, so instead of being about a God or another worldly being, it's about an actual human being. Um, so you have in this ancient history, you have these seven sages that were considered Anunnaki, but they were like these straight, they were, they were identified as star people, you know, they, they were mm -hmm. this whole other thing. And these were the beings that the travelers, the people who came to Mesopotamia to start the Sumerian, well, who ended up starting the Sumerian culture, those are the beings that they were in contact with. So it's like you have, cause this is such an old story and it, it's such a lasting story. This is something that is like thousands of years. So there was an evolution and changing, like going all through that. And so what I think is that you know, a lot of it gets blurred because we're dealing with actual physical beings who are also being influenced by what they thought were otherworldly beings, which that's sort of what I go into a little more detail about the relationship between the potential for there being these hidden hands or these, you know, for lack of a better word, alien guides um, that, you know, happened so many thousands of years ago but that may also be being a hidden hand now in our own, um, you know, contemporary culture. Sounds awfully, you know, <laughs> out there, but. Sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> but I go through, <laughs> I go through everything in detail. And you do. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a quick question for you. The, um, the Anunnaki that came down from the mountains to Mesopotamia mm -hmm. and claimed that those that, that they came into contact with, they called them the black hood people. So y'all have evidence of that, correct? Yes. Is there any evidence from the people of Mesopotamia as to their first impression of the Anunnaki when they came down? Well, I think the most of it comes from, see, that's, it's tricky because history is written by the victors, right? So right. <laughs> um, a lot of these you have almost like a, you see this a lot in very ancient texts where it's almost like a, participant observer or third person perspective. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's actually doing the, um, you know, account. So, but yes, you do have, um, you know, the, the stories from say the black headed people, the Sumerians, um, but it kind of comes later and it's kind of a hodgepodge and it's mixed up. And, and then you have, you know, it's the Sumerian tablets aren't they're They're like a, a corpus of everything from, literature like epic of gilgamesh and stories um also religious texts and hymns um textbooks and, and medicinal manuals and then just basic record keeping and receipts and legal guides and so uh you'll find a little of that in everything and so yes you'll find accounts you know from all sides but the ones that we generally look at is 
really predominant are ones that were written by scribal scholars who um, it was their job to write these accounts over and over again to, um, you know, practice their writing, but then also um, achieve some level of ascension. Like they had a mystery religion, kind of mystery school structure. Um, they had degrees, they would have to, you know, go through and part of what they had to do was write these texts over and over again. And then next time it would be revealed what another portion of it meant and so on and so forth. And so you'll see a lot of those sorts of texts out there. And so some of them seem divinely inspired, but then they're also, you know, they've been touched by the people. And so they put their input into it, much like biblical literature. Mm -hmm. I just, I, in my head, when we say the black hood people and we know that there are four eleven to five, two, I mm. immediately see the Anunnaki being mountain folk, lighter skin, lighter hair, hot, taller frame, larger build. I immediately yes. see that. So it's like the, it's like the complete opposite yeah. and all of a sudden they meet. And I'm just, if, if I was from Mesopotamia at that time, I would look to this person that is completely different than everything else. I know. <clears throat> as something above me yes and blue eyes was an important like component to this too if you look at a lot of these statues from the sumerians of their gods they had these huge saucer-like eyes and they were often blue they were you know they were made of lapis lazuli or sometimes turquoise and it became such a thing that even to this day we have that notion of the evil eye being the blue eye mm -hmm. so there's um, especially in the middle east you can buy uh these amulets that are like these glassy blue you know really pretty they're supposed to look like eyes and they're um good luck they ward off the evil eye, mm -hmm. but that was sort of the idea in that time was that the blue eye was um, very rare. It did happen, but it was rare and therefore scary. And it's interesting to consider then that a lot of the gods were depicted, the Anunnaki were depicted as much larger beings and they had blue eyes mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, differentiated them from the locals. Now, later they assimilated and that's where you get that whole Nephilim idea where they started merging and everything assimilates. And so the difference wasn't really that Pronounced, strong yeah. after a while. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think what we're looking at when we look at some of these stories is really the civilizing of, of, of man. Now, you know, like this idea of civilization, like making towns and, you know, all of this, uh, and you just see it echo throughout the, the stories. But again, there's that, sort of vestigial, you know, remnant of the culture and experiences of the Anunnaki, the pre-flood people that still is in the most ancient texts. And that's something that, you know, I think is, is interesting, a little strange. And, uh, you know, you kind of see a, a common thread then woven throughout a lot of different myths. So you see like the snake, um, the snake people, the Hopi, you have like a, a archons of the Gnostics, you have, um, you know, so many of these, just like fairy people. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at what I think is different cultures and their explanations for the same sort of experience. Mm -hmm. And so basically, if you look at, if you're looking at these very ancient accounts of those seven sages, and how they were able to say telepathically communicate or mostly what they did was they gave technology out. It was something really, you know, important, that component of it. 
you know, if you look at sort of modern day, and this is going to sound, you know, like a big leap, and it is a big leap, thousands of years. If you look at what's going on in Silicon Valley um, and a lot of other places with research into substances like DMT, you know, or psilocybin, when they do this research, what they claim they see when they do this is uh, beings, entities. You sometimes call them the clockwork elves or the machine elves. And a common feature that they have is that they give them technology or they show them things. They give them something. And, the, and when you come out of that, your mind is expanded. You sometimes have this great knowledge. And now that's not to suggest that this is something ideal or that people should do that or that they shouldn't. It's not a judgment call. It's simply an observation that it's similar to what shamans have gone through in time. And it's something that you see described over and over again throughout many different cultures and many different myths and stories throughout all of what I could determine is, is human existence. And so that to me means there's something there. What is it? You know, it's just changing names and forms through time. But I, I, I would tend to believe that there's something, something to that, that these beings may in fact be the same beings that when people say they're seeing these clockwork elves, they're seeing those seven sages or whatever the kind of other dimensional kind of experience. I don't know. Something you know, interdimensional maybe. Yeah. Maybe something like that shape shifting, you know, all that good stuff. Right. I love that stuff. So, um, <laughs> I have been uh, collecting some questions here from the chat. And just to remind everybody, uh, down in the description uh, of this uh, live stream here on YouTube. So um, this is the uh, the books, the Anunnaki Connection, and I, actually the audiobook as well. So you can hit that through the link in the description. Those on the uh, podcast uh, can go to Dr. Heather Lynn's website to grab those. Um but let me get to a couple of these questions here. And you were just kind of uh, talking about the sages here a little bit and a little bit a uh, little while ago. Uh, Brandon asks, uh, in her book, The Anunnaki Connection, Dr. Lynn speaks about the sages. Can we ever speak about the sages as a comparison between the Anunnaki and the sages? So is there a way to compare them? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of different ways. Um, one would be how they're depicted in the tablets. In the tablets, you'll see the Anunnaki as actual beings. They're, they're you know, they, they may um, be animal-human hybrids at some, some points. They could be just regular people, but they have, you know, sort of like uh, royal gowns or headgear or something. You see them looking like people, but you see these sages depicted as circles, little, um, generally stars, the way that the... Uh, the Sumerians depicted stars in their, in their tablets were just basically dots. And so um, you'll see star burst looking things, but most of those were um, suns or just uh, depictions of other celestialized gods. But the, the stars were depicted as little sort of raised bumps. And that's how the sages were depicted. They're often related to the um, Pleiadian star system, that kind of thing. So, um, so they're represented that way in the tablets, but then also in the literature, they're described as being sort of like fish men who came out mm -hmm. of the water looking like they had scales and they were completely different than the Anunnaki themselves or what we would call the Anunnaki. Uh, they had, uh, you know, aside from the scales, they actually emerged from the water. They, you know, came out. They were described as being semi-biological. So they were not ghosts, but they weren't necessarily organic either they were somewhere in between 
And that's something very different than the rest of the Anunnaki. The rest of the Anunnaki are described as having you know, maybe sharp features or blue eyes and they ate this or they did that. Whereas the sages, completely different. They were, they were trippy and different. You know, something maybe a little more ethereal. Yeah, it's very, yeah. very ethereal, fluid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some people have described, well, they were possibly wearing an outfit that made it look like scales. And other people say, well, they just appeared like fish, but they would appear and then disappear very much like a, you know, like a lady of the lake kind of thing, go back mm-hmm. into the water, come out of the mist or, you know, and so um, they were depicted, you know, both in the art and in the literature very differently. Hmm. We also have a question here from Victoria M. Any chance that the Anunnaki have been here the entire time going through ebbs and flows and they're on the precipice of emerging again? How many of the myths are actually based in truth? Well, there's not really a good like scientific way to answer that. And so I'll just say for my personal thoughts, um, you know, because there, there's really no way to say, oh yeah, they're here and here's the evidence. Um, I would like to find that evidence, but from just uh, my thoughts on the connection between these sort of sages, these this whole mess of different beings, I would say that they've always been here and that they're still here. And that in a lot of ways, they, they do ebb and flow. I think that's a really good way of describing it based on um, people and the times. So for instance, people maybe trying to conjure them up or contact them or I know that there's actual groups right now who work in occult circles that are actively trying to summon, for lack of a better word, these entities. And they're doing that in the hopes that they're going to come and save us from ourselves. Um, Are they going to be successful? Maybe, I don't know. But I think that's sort of the idea is that through ebbs and flows, you might have people who put forth that energy to bring them and maybe not in other times. Aren't there some of these elite groups out there that believe that they have Anunnaki blood in them and, you know, are basically, um, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I guess I'll just leave it at that. Aren't there these elite groups out there <laughs> that believe that yeah. they're descended from the Anunnaki? <laughs> I don't want to suddenly just get cut off yeah. the air and have somebody at the door with a gun or something. <laughs> right. They're here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's another component to this. And I think that's another reason it gets so crazy when you try to research is that you have this like very mundane sort of archaeological approach. But then you have this weird like dark side of it. Like, why are these elites caring about these sort of myths and stories? Um, well, I think that's because, you know, they're not necessarily concerned with the later Anunnaki, the ones that are, you know, part of the stories that, you know, a lot of people talk about now, but that they instead are linking themselves to uh, that bloodline, that King's list. And that in a way they are emulating what they believe to be that ancient sort of religion for lack of better term, so that they also are trying to connect with those otherworldly guides so that they can be, utilizing those hidden hands as you know as an upper hand really uh to rule over us which is sort of what the text indicate that the ancient kings did is that they had this magical you know rule over the common people based on their close ability to contact these sages 
that was so important to them. Um, and then they had a priest class that would be the go-between the, the earthly Kings and then the regular people. And, you know, and so I think what's going on is you have these other like eccentric folk right now who believe that they are the, you know, inheritors of this the system and that they feel that they also, you know, need to be a, a sort of God King and that they do that through summoning or channeling a lot of times through meditation and, and all these techniques. They do that um, to get this off world information. I mean, this is not necessarily my belief. This is what they believe. And I, right. and I have that firmly documented that you have, <laughs> you know, it's like when, when you're, when you're poor, and you have thoughts like that are different, you're crazy. When you're wealthy and you have thoughts that are different, you're eccentric. Right. Exactly. And so they get away <laughs> with a lot. And so so you have these people who are in charge, you know, they're wearing suits, they're acting like they have a handle on things, but in their spare time, they have this other religion that they kind of follow. And then it's like this narcissistic, self-aggrandizing religion that they believe that they are the Anunnaki on earth and that they're in contact with these like otherworldly sages and i don't know i think they're playing with fire but a little bit yeah just a little bit and and you <laughs> hear bit. about these people and and you've brought it up here before actually that you know we'll have a number of these artifacts kind of stashed away at their house on display at their house yeah. but um that regular people like you know us <laughs> can't, can't get a hold of and, and take a look at right yeah like, it's it's bizarre and they're very hyper concerned about it like they're trying to piece together their lineage, they think, you know, I, I think it's a, it's just another us versus them thing. You know, when you've already reached the top of your Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. you just start saying, well, what is it now? I guess it's this, you know, meanwhile, we're collecting toilet paper and trying to stay alive. Yeah. Some of these people but have this kind of idea. But it's very similar. It, it, it's what I say in the metaphysical realm. Most people do not believe in magic. Mm -hmm. until you ask them for a little bit of their hair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That right. is a true story. That's a true story. So, you know, you cannot believe in something all day long, but your subconscious that knows that there's a possibility will fear when somebody approaches that subject. So yeah. when you're talking about people like this, they might convince themselves on a daily basis. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is nothing. But then they find that they can get their hands on something. Their subconscious says, holy crap, there's a, a one millionth of a chance that's going to get me power. Give it to me now. <laughs> I think that's probably, yeah, I think that's probably a good point because a lot of, of people throughout history and even now are searching for these magical things, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's you know, the Nazis did this. So they were oh, another yeah. great, great example of this where they were, they thought they were, you know, in communication with another otherworldly being. They were channeling and, and exchanging information and, and trying to get this technology to build these flying saucers and, you know, a whole different myth. And so it's just peculiar to me that you have that happening. You can see this in almost every generation, in every culture, the same kind of narrative. And it just, it looks a little different based on you know who's telling the story, but the if you take away all those labels and, and you know abstractions, you cut it right down to the heart. What it seems to be is the same thing over and over again. That in the human experience, there are entities, for lack of better, you know, more descriptive word, that um, have some sort of effect on 
on the world, on human behavior, on, on our course, you know, uh, uh, to the future. And that other people, some people are able to tap into that for better or worse. And it's a very powerful and alluring thing. Now, in my other book, Evil Archaeology, it sort of discusses a similar thing in that, you know, demons, people do this, you know, conjure up demons or, or try to think that right. they're getting help from demons. And I think likewise, there's the question of angels, like, what are these entities? And now it's easy to say, well, you know, demons are evil, angels are good, duh. But in the ancient times, the lines were very blurred. It was, they were more just these entities that were powerful. What well, they believed they in could, good demons back then. Yeah. And yeah, bad yeah. angels. Exactly. Right. And so, yeah, that's exactly right. And so <laughs> the, we've demonized the demons and made yep. them like fiercely evil. And what the ancient way of looking at this was, they were just sort of very powerful. And by virtue of them being powerful, they were dangerous. But also, if you appeal to them, they could be helpful. So like King Solomon, you know, in the grimoire about him, uh, supposedly harnessed the power of all these demons to build his temple. And so, you know, and he played with fire and it didn't work out so well for him. But you know, I think that's the tale. I think that's what it is, is that you often have where people, you know, try to harness the power of these entities that they don't know are good or evil. They'll sometimes show them great things, great technologies, build them castles and temples. And, and then something happens like, you know, in the ancient Abrahamic religions, it's the idea of these demons or the demon Satan um, would be the father of lies. And then you see that idea of the trickster where, you know, they're, yes, they can do bad things, but it's not necessarily like they're just evil for evil's sake, but that they get joy and pleasure out of tricking you, out of fooling you. And that's like temptation, tricksters. You have that theme throughout almost every culture. And so when I hear people's accounts when they're on these psychedelics of having, you know, these little beings like dance around them and saying, come see, come see. And like, I'll show you all this technology. Um, and then they're tricky. They're like, I would, if I were in that situation, I would be very skeptical and a little bit cautious about that because, you know, sure, you might get a lot of uh, great insight or knowledge or technology, but how, for how long? And right. will you, what, what will you have to give them in return? Cause you know, yeah, you know, what, grass or cash, no one rides for free. You know? So yeah, when, at that. some point you're going to have to pay up. And, and for I think what that's purpose happened. will you use it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Therein lies the difference. Maybe those particular tricksters seek out those particular people using psychedelics because they know that their that their conscious threat threshold is lower. Right. Therefore, they can implement something that could actually bring destruction. Very well, could be. I mean, that's that seems so. It's interesting when when we have this conversation about, say, the Anunnaki, where most people are thinking about the Anunnaki. Um, maybe not most, but a lot of you know the ideas are that they're these maybe reptilian beings that come in on these, like in these, you know, 1950s rocket ships, what's <laughs> going on. And, um, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, if it helps you kind of understand, you know, some of the aspects of the story, but from, from where I'm sitting, I think that, you know, it may seem strange to consider the Anunnaki as sort of akin to angels or demons or spirits or even aliens in that sense. But, when you really look at the literature and the basis for all of these religions in general, like that's what they were saying. The Elohim, the, you know, uh, just 
the Nephilim, they, they never really said, Hey, these are, you know, monsters or reptilians or creatures. Mm -hmm. These are, these are like what we would consider angels, demons, fallen angels. It was never really separated from that kind of what we would consider religious ideology now. And so a lot of people maybe get uncomfortable with that because they don't want to drag religion into it. However, if you just set those things aside and not think about, you know, the, the dogma or philosophy and just look at it in terms of just literature, um, it does go with that because it's where it came from. It was the precursor, all of these, like the Noah story and all this, this was the basis for, you know, the Jewish religion and then Christian religion. But these old stories from the old Testament came from the Sumerians, oh, yeah. um, most of them. And so it really can't be, Pulled out from that too much. And that's why a lot of the things that we may recognize today as being, you know, maybe uh, possessions or angels or any of these stories, um, they're very similar to the accounts that the Sumerians had because they, they're, you know, we still have some of that influence in our modern beliefs. Well, something I always point out to people is, you know, Abraham came from Ur, so he's going to have a lot of that background yes. and, and, and pass that down. Um, before we wrap things up, I have one more question here from the chat room from Robert Hanna. Uh, do you think Atlantis has any Anunnaki connection? I do. I, I actually do. Um, uh, Atlantis, um, I, I really don't have a, a doubt that it existed because Plato... I mean, people listen to him on everything else. And then this one thing, they're like, oh, well, he was just making that up. No, I don't buy that. I, <laughs> I tend to look at ancient texts and I, I, I look at them and uh, try not to doubt, you know, what they're telling me. You know, I'll look at it, but it, it, it was critically as much as possible, but I don't go in and just automatically say, oh, well, they were, they're crazy because they're from the past. No. So for me, Plato is a, an amazing authority. So I, I really do think that there is, uh, something to the story of Atlantis. And I do think that it could be connected to the Anunnaki, that maybe that was that civilization X, that that was the pre-flood kind of notion, but that these, these things happen, not the main flood, but that these sort of, you know, things happen a lot where you have these, you know, bastions of, of civilization and high tech, you know, living happening and something happens and they get punished in, a, in, a, in you know, the way the ancients were to look at it. But, um, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just giving no credit to the ancient people for coming up with their own ideas or building things or having science. It's not that at all because they did it. I'm just saying what inspired them. And like I wrote about in my, you know, uh, evil archaeology, the word inspire is something really loaded. It's a loaded word from inspirare, you know, in Latin, from a spiritual being blowing an idea into you. I mean, that's very telling. So yes, they did these things, but what inspired them? You know, who inspired them? And those are the questions I'm still trying to answer with all the rest of my research. So it's not over yet. Hopefully I got some, uh, got somewhere in this new book, but uh, you know, it's just not going to be over for a long time. So what can, uh, I mean, this was a fantastic book. Definitely recommend people to uh, pick it up. So what do you have going forward from here? Well, I am uh, sheltering in place. Well, <laughs> so we're all doing I, that. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's that. Uh, and I'm working on a new book, uh, the follow-up to Evil Archaeology. It is going to be kind of like the exact opposite. It's about angels. It's like sacred archaeology, holy relics, and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I'm working on that. And then, you know, just... 
have a podcast I'm trying to put together again and uh, see how that goes. And we'll see. I had a lot of stuff planned for the summer at conference and things, but you know, uh, yeah. shelter and play. Yeah, We're going through a lot of stuff as a, as a people right now. And so a lot of things have been put on hold that and I'm teaching a class at the local college and that's been interesting and fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's got to keep you brushed up on some of this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. So let's go ahead and get to, um, okay. So where can everybody find your, your books? Um, any bookstore, uh, you can go, um, to my website is a great place to start. Uh, but yeah, Amazon, uh, there's the audiobook too, if you're interested in that. Um, but just any Barnes and Noble also, you know, indie bookstores right now, especially given the situation that we're in uh you know you can go online to a website called IndieBound, and you can order um, books to be delivered and they come from your independent uh, bookstore which is nice and helpful for that so uh, but otherwise yeah amazon has them like like you would imagine and so yeah um and as far as your older books i know some of them have kind of gone in and out of print what can and but it, it was all very interesting uh, at least what i was able to get my hands on so what is still available from you from your back catalog um, evil archaeology for sure. That is still available. That's also on an audiobook. And then uh uh Anthrotheology, I think. <coughs> Excuse me. And then um Sumerian Controversy. I think those are available. I'm actually not sure, but I do know that uh there are people who are selling bootlegged and like not real <laughs> copies of wow. Land of the Watchers, and they're selling them for a lot of money and they're wow. not even the real thing. People are don't buy that. So like if anybody is interested in that backlist, I would suggest just emailing me and I'll secure that copy for you. But because Amazon's been real shady about that. Real shady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I it's it's terrible when that happens, but that's yeah. you know how I came across a lot of your you know work to begin with was um, I'd gotten I think it was yeah on Kindle when I was riding the metro when I lived in Washington D.C. I was reading you know Land of the Watchers and um, the Sumerian controversy and all that on the Kindle back then when it was available. So it was it was very interesting. Well, thanks. So, you're welcome. All right. Um, Dr. Heather Lynn, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. We always have a great time. We always learn so much whenever you come on. <laughs> we really do. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I'm, I'm so glad uh, to join you. And um, yeah, anytime you want to talk about these things, you know, I'm sheltering in place. <laughs> yeah, sheltering in place. <laughs> we're, we're, we're here. Just here. So, but yeah, it's thanks so much for having lot. me. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> thanks for having me. And thank you to everybody in the chat that answered you know, ask questions, you know, you have a really great audience and uh, thanks for giving me the chance to speak with everybody tonight. Absolutely. Thank you again, my friend. Thank Bye, you. Heather. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.